How many of you would classify yourself as a ringer or a Tolkienite? Not seeing many hands this morning. That's, <laughs> that's kind of what I expected. So full disclosure, put it out there, for most of my young life, I avoided the fantasy genre of literature like I still avoid Brussels sprouts today. I just, I never could get into it. You know, I wanted reality and history, not magic and hobbits. But that all changed a few years ago when a dear brother of mine finally convinced me to try out the Lord of the Rings, to see what Tolkien had to say, and so I did. First of all, I discovered that there are realities of life in every single one of those pages that Tolkien writes in The Lord of the Rings, but there was a scene that I felt the most connected to. So forgive me for any spoilers if you're making your way through the movies or through the books, but in the last volume, the third book of the trilogy, called The Return of the King, after the epic final battle, after the ring has been destroyed at Mount Doom, the hobbit Sam looks at Gandalf the wizard and he asks him this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And maybe that question, perhaps not the same words, has been on your mind too, and maybe it's on your mind right now this morning. Is everything sad in my life finally going to come untrue? Have you been wrestling with this idea that the Christian life it's destined to be one that's sad. That as you follow Jesus, you can't help but be followed by maybe a sterile or painful existence. Or maybe you're wondering how you can experience happiness, lasting, real, authentic happiness this side of heaven. If you are, then you understand just how real this was for the bride and groom in John chapter 2. So I don't have to tell you all this, weddings are a big deal, right? In the U.S. last year, you know what the average cost of a wedding was? $22,500. Weddings are a big deal. But, believe it or not, in 27 AD Israel, weddings were an even bigger deal. They didn't just last a day, they could last as long as a week. And you had no idea as the host when your invited guests were going to come. They could come on Monday, they could come on Wednesday, they could come on Thursday, but no matter what, you had to make sure you had food and wine and everything ready to go at every moment of every day because if you didn't, there'd be a lot of shame attached to that and this is why. See, weddings for them, it wasn't just about the bride and the groom. It's about the whole community. See, the people of Israel saw weddings as this powerful visual reminder of the Lord and his people, the connection, the relationship that's there. And so people would fast before weddings. They would pray intensely before weddings. Everything had to be done just right. And if it wasn't, you'd have a lot of shame tacked onto your shoulders. And so it's kind of hard for us in our Western culture, which is very individualistic, guilt, innocence, to understand Eastern culture, which is very honor, shame, community-focused. It's when we start to understand that a little bit, we can understand why running out of wine was more than just a trivial thing. It was significant. In this sad but true moment, Mary realizes there's a problem here. And she's desperate to try to find any sort of help to save this couple from starting their married life in shame. And so she runs up to Jesus, her oldest son, and you can almost hear the desperation in the text here. They have no more wine. Jesus, please help these two young people you know so 
well. You know what will happen if more people find out about this. But Jesus, as you'll find the more you read the Gospels, he responds in the exact opposite way than we would anticipate. He looks at his mom and he says, Woman, why do you involve me? And whoa, is Jesus grumpy here? I mean, it sounds pretty grumpy what he says, right? He calls his own mother, not mom, but just woman. See, I think what he's doing is he's distancing himself from both his mom and really the whole situation. And it seems at first glance, like Jesus is saying, hey, leave me alone. This is not my problem. They're going to have to figure it out on their own. And it may seem that Jesus is saying, it's up to that bride and groom to make what is sad in their life come untrue. I think there's a temptation there for us too. Now, is the Christian life just that? Is it a life that's destined to be full of suffering and that's all we should expect? Is the Christian life 99% pain with maybe a dash of pleasure? Can we find the type of happiness and joy and delight and litness, if you will, in God? Or have we accepted all too quickly that we need to look somewhere else to find that happiness that we all need desperately? We know the Christian life involves a cross, right? We know it involves suffering, but is that all it is? So where do we turn to? If we can't find that delight, that happiness, and that pleasure that we all need, where do we run to try to find it? In influencing people in Snapchat stories, in getting caught up in the politics of the world, in nature, in our family, in our spouse, in our friends, in online discord gaming, in food, in our fitness life. See, there's one central theme in all of those things. It's one of the most lethal and hard to detect lies of the devil that the Christian life is incompatible with pleasure. It's this untruth that as a Christian, you should expect nothing but full throttle suffering and no delight, no happiness, no joy. It's that fake news, that untruth, that as a Christian, you need to lower your expectations for what Jesus can do for you in your life. That he can't deliver the kind of happiness you need. He can't deliver the kind of fulfillment you're craving. If that's where we're at by nature, then we understand the scene that's unfolding here at the wedding of Cana. You understand the situation the bride and the groom and Mary were in. How in the world can you and I make what's sad in our lives come untrue? It's in that moment that Jesus says something that's shocking. It's stunning. He says, my hour has not yet come. And every time Jesus uses this phrase in the Gospel of John, he's talking about his death. In fact, Jesus had his death on his mind as he walked every single step on this earth. Which is interesting. It's kind of crazy, right? At a wedding where it's supposed to be happy and joy-filled, here he is thinking about his death. So what's with this unusual reply to his mom and this depressing comment about his death? See, Jesus here, he's looking past this wedding. He's looking past his mom. He's looking past this whole reception. He's thinking about all the shame and all the guilt and all the pain that every single person on this planet has ever faced and endured. And he's thinking, I, I can't stand this pain and the shame that my people are going through. 
I want to bring them joy and delight and hope. But in order to do that, I'm going to have to die. No, maybe Jesus was quote-unquote grumpy. Because if you've ever been single at a wedding, you get this. You know, there you are at, the, at a wedding, and you see the bride and the groom. And what are you thinking about with that faraway look in your eye? You're thinking about what it's going to feel like when you're up there, right? When your wedding day comes. See, Jesus, he was thinking about his wedding day here. That glorious day when everything sad in your life will come untrue. He was thinking about that day where he would bring his bride, the church, that includes you and me, to a place where there is no more sadness or tears or unmet expectations. Jesus has a reason for everything, including that whole reference to the ceremonial basins thing here. It's a subtle way that Jesus is telling us the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was about. You and I can't atone for our sins. We can't make enough sacrifices in our lives to make up for how we've let God down. We can't scrub ourselves clean from everything that's wrong with us. We need somebody else to do that. A lamb to be sacrificed. A sacrifice that would be once and for all. Jesus had all this in mind. And he knew just the right place and the right time to show his divine power for the very first time as he walked this earth among us. Again, Jesus, just like we talked about, he does things that are the exact opposite a lot of the time than what we would expect him to do. He chooses the environment for his very first miracle, not at a local homeless shelter, not at a local hospital with a person dying of disease, no, not even at a gravesite, but at a wedding reception. For the benefit of a couple that seems to be healthy and even wealthy, which of course begs the question, why? Well, to answer that question, we have to start by answering the very first question we've kept on talking about in this conversation. When is everything sad in your life and mine going to come untrue, and how is that going to happen? Well, everything sad in your life and mine will turn to joy when the Spirit reveals to you and me through the Bible what Jesus' whole mission and purpose was from the start. Yes, suffering was a huge part of this, but you know what his mission and purpose is? It's to bring you joy and delight and happiness that's unmatched by anything else in the world. He wants to give you the kind of joy that you can't even try to understand. Like Paul wrote, it's immeasurably more than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. He wants you to see the wedding day that he's looking forward to. That day when his bride in all its entirety of diversity and strength and beauty is walked down the aisle of heaven and he opens the door to show you the place he's been preparing for you since before time began. He wants to unmask for you the delight that he has in you and the purpose that is with you in everything you do. So when life hits you and you're trying to find pleasure in the things of this world and you just can't find it, at least nothing that lasts, it's a blessing and you can thank God for that. I know that sounds maybe a little bit crazy, but by faith then you're redirected away from the decaying things of this world that are here today and gone tomorrow and you turn back to the God who wants nothing more than to give you pure, Christ-powered pleasure and joy that no matter how much suffering you face, it can never be taken away from you. I'm not talking about just the joy of heaven. I'm talking about the joy 
right here, right now, the joy that Jesus can give you in a way that goes beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, just look at how Jesus did that here. Here they are running out of wine. He could have simply, it would have been an incredible miracle in and of itself if he would have changed that water into like a middle shelf wine. Everybody got a glass. That would have been incredible. Instead, he makes his creation of water blush so much that people were sipping the greatest and most delicious tasting red that's ever been sipped. And he didn't just make enough for a couple drops for everybody or half a glass. He made the equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine. Way more than what they needed. But there's a point in that. And there's a point that he wants you to see this morning. When you can't seem to find happiness, when you're wondering if Jesus is capable to give you the answer to that void you feel, remember his first miracle. Look at how much more Jesus did than he needed to. Look how much joy and delight that he was so excited to give. See, Jesus, on his timetable, his perfect timing, he knows the exact right moment to give you exactly what you need. He always delivers. It's never less than enough. It's always more. See, Jesus is looking forward to that day when heaven's going to come down and make all things new. In fact, on that last day when all this is done, all the suffering of human history, compared to the joy that we have in Jesus, the astonishing happiness we have, all that suffering is going to seem like a couple of bad dreams in comparison. See, Jesus has such an incredible joy to give you. But what does this look like for us? What does this look like on the everyday level? Well, to find that answer, Mary gives us a great model for how this works. So remember how Jesus talked to her, right? Woman, why do you involve me? Look at how she responds. She doesn't get offended or hurt or frustrated or impatient. What does she say to the servants? She says, do whatever he tells you. Now, for those servants, it was something as mundane and simple as filling some jars with water. But they got to be a part of Jesus' first miracle. I can only imagine the stories they got to tell their kids and their grandkids. They got to be a part of that. A newsflash for us today, Jesus has in mind for you to be a part of the miracles he's still doing. He's given you a role to play in that too. And the core of that is what Mary exemplifies for us. It's something we call self-denial. You see this throughout the Bible. But a lot of people don't understand what self-denial means. It's, it's not beating yourself up. And it's not loading guilt on your shoulders for past regrets. It's not thinking less of yourself. But it's thinking of yourself less because by faith, you want nothing more than for your mind and heart to be consumed with what Jesus is doing in every moment of your life. What separates Christianity from every other religion is that Jesus, that your God, takes special care in everything you do. There is not a single task you have that he doesn't find to be the most significant thing for him to pay attention to. It's this incredible joy that our God cares that deeply about us. Now we're going to sing it later, Jesus loves me, this I know. You think about what that means? It means that changing a diaper after a blowout is an incredible way to serve your God. You're showing the selfless love of Jesus to your kids. It means when you're at work and you don't join in the gossip or the cussing and people kind of look at you with a weird eye, little do you know that might be the spark to a conversation that starts the miracle of bringing somebody to faith. When you talk to your kids about what Jesus is, when you live a life that is fearless because of who you are in Jesus, 
You could be a part of the miracle of bringing somebody else closer to Jesus through it. See, self-denial is the most amazing way of life because it takes away the distractions. It takes us away from looking at the things in our lives that we give unrealistic expectations to to give us happiness and instead to turn our eyes to the God who wants more than anything to bring you more joy and more delight and more hope and more peace than you ever thought was possible. He is the Lord of the feast that is preparing a feast right now in heaven for all of us will be together where there will be no more weeping or crying or pain. See, Jesus, he wants to take everything that is sad in your life and transform it into being untrue, to make it happy and joy-filled. See, Jesus is our Savior from all of our problems. It's true. He saved us from the deep problems of Satan, sin, and death, and we thank him for it. But don't stop there with him. Don't think that his suffering was the end. It was merely the means to the end. Jesus is also the MC of the wedding supper of the Lamb. A place and a feast where you're going to lose yourself in the joy and the celebration that's there. Everything sad will come untrue. And Jesus has a beaming smile on his face. When he looks at you, he takes so much delight in you. And that's what the Christian life is all about. It's running to Jesus. It's having joy no matter what we face. And it's remembering that this life all has a meaning. Everything we do is a purpose. And it all ends in the same place. A different kind of wedding. A wedding where Jesus is our host and where tears are a thing of the past. Amen. And to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be all glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.